Hello, and welcome back to Love and Friendship. Today we are taking on yet another exorbitantly ambitious project. We're going to talk about Christianity. Um, and man, there is so much that we need to talk about on this one. Like, we're going to be talking about Christian-motivated philosophy and Christian-adjacent philosophy for basically the rest of the semester. Like, this is a hugely important religious, political, cultural force. Like, I cannot stress, I cannot overestimate um, how powerful Christianity is going to be in influencing the way that the Western philosophy develops. Like, even to the point that, you know, in the 19th century, we've got, like, Nietzsche and Kierkegaard and, and Schopenhauer sort of pushing back against Christianity in some ways. When we've got Freud sort of deliberately rejecting, you know, a lot of the sort of Christian religiosity surrounding sexuality, you know, as much as the existentialists like Sartre trying to kick it out of their lives, like, they're not successful. Every part of Western culture is colored by the Christian attitude, and especially when we're talking about love and friendship. Like, there's no way around it. There is just no way that we can't talk about Christianity here and do any amount of justice to the way that love is understood in our culture or in any of the sort of historical cultures that have come before us. Um, this is huge. Um, to downplay this would be to do a serious injustice to just the way that history works. So we have to get this down. And importantly for us, like most importantly for us, we have to get this down and we have to get it down correctly. Um, like I said in the discussion of the Old Testament, there's a lot of bad information out there. And, you know, like I said with the Old Testament, if you go searching for information about Judaism, if you just try and research it under your own steam, you're going to probably find yourself down a lot of, like, blind alleys and sort of very deeply etched tracks, um, none of which communicate with each other, none of which agree with each other. All of this is, if anything, double. For Christianity, because Christianity is the dominant faith here, even more so than Judaism and has been for so long, um, because it is the bugbear of atheists and detractors. Like everybody has a has an axe to grind here. Like the Christians are out to prove that their Bible is trustworthy and good and all that. The atheists are out to prove that the Christianity is nonsense and not nearly what it pretends to be. Like it's a mess. Um, and we need to sort of dispel as much of that mess as possible. We need to understand Christianity as its writers and, you know, original thinkers thought it for the purposes of this class so we can build on that and talk about how it changed. Because it did change. That's what I really need to emphasize here. Christianity is not one monolithic religion that was, like, penned by the writers of the New Testament and then just stayed there, stagnant, you know, not moving for literally 2,000 years. That's not it at all. Um, Christianity has evolved. It has developed. It is fractured. It is mutated. It has become what it wasn't and sort of resought itself, like... All of the various moments in philosophical history that we're going to talk about going forward are, for the most part, also major moments in the history of Christianity. The two are not separable. Um, as much as, you know, a lot of philosophers think that we can conduct philosophy without the sort of corruptive influence of, of Christianity, anytime that you're going to be talking about philosophy from the historical standpoint, you've got to understand where philosophy is standing in relation to Christianity to properly understand what it's saying and what it's doing. 
Um, like, even philosophy that is ostensibly atheistic, whether it's something like Kant talking about how his morality is based purely on reason and no longer requires religion for its justification, or something like Nietzsche that is specifically talking about destroying old idols and old faiths, old religions, or something like Sartre that says that, you know, there is no way for us to take... Um, take information or take our advice or take direction from a source without processing it through our own consciousness first, all of them are still speaking in relation to the shadow of Christianity looming overhead. Kant is responding to Christianity by saying that we don't need dogma in order to justify its truths. Nietzsche is saying that Christianity is corrupting society and therefore needs to be extirpated by any means necessary. And Sartre is saying what he's saying, largely knowing full well that there are many existentialists who agree with Sartre's conclusion, who also accept the truth of the Bible and are Christians in their own right. There's no way out of this. Um, even today, as much as Christianity is on the wane in Western culture and America, especially for, I guess, what that's worth, like it is, you know, a complicated issue all by itself, even those who are convinced that Christianity is not influencing their decisions, influencing their lives, are just tragically mistaken. It is too powerful, has been for too long. Like, if, you know, if scholars and thinkers today in, insist that, you know, colonialism and imperialism informs every single aspect of our lives today, and that's a phenomenon that's only like four or five hundred years old at the outside, just think of how much more Christianity informs our lives being 2,000 years old and having absolutely been the core of Western culture and conviction for all 2,000 of those years. Everything we think we know about love is probably colored by the Christian attitude. Um, everything we think we know about sex is probably colored by the Christian attitude. Everything we, everything we think we know about friendship is probably colored by the Christian attitude. It's huge. Um, so let's, enough preface, let's talk. Um, again, I will try to answer as many sort of anticipated objections that I expect, as well as sort of set the record straight as much as I possibly can about what Christianity is about, especially sort of correcting contemporary biases and uh, misconceptions about Christianity, um, especially like today's biases and misconceptions, because Christianity has wandered very far afield in its contemporary American variant. Um, but we also need to get back to basics. We need to talk about what, like, the Bible is actually saying, what the New Testament is doing, what the writers of the New Testament are doing, why they write what they write, what their purposes were, how they were meant to be interpreted, and how they have been interpreted, either rightly or wrongly, since. Um, and to do all that, we need to start with, of course, more history. Um, we touched on it a little bit, not very much, but in our discussion of Stoicism, the rise of the Roman Empire, I mentioned and spent a significant time talking about the Hebrew experience under the Ptolemaic rule, like uh, J Jerusalem under the Greeks, um, how the Maccabees were kind of in charge of the place and they were very much revolting against the Greek idols and the Greek gods and the Greek culture that was sort of infiltrating into uh, Hebrew and Judaic life. Um, and then I very much emphasize that and then the Romans took it over and everything, you know, went bad again. Um, this is where we're going to pick up this part of the story because it's when the, the Romans take over Jerusalem, when they control Palestine, when they set up shop there, that things get a little dicey. 
Um, and this is, of course, where Jesus shows up. So we need to talk about that. Um, but before we can even get to Jesus, we have to talk about Messianic prophecy. Um, for literally hundreds of years, leading up to the Roman Empire's rule of Palestine, um, you can see this in many of the Old Testament texts. You can see it all over the Apocrypha, the sort of intertestamental period, which we'll get to that. Um, there are many, many writers and many, many prophets in the Jewish tradition who posit the existence or, or the coming of this Messiah figure. Um, and various prophets and stuff will have kind of different attitudes about what Messiah is supposed to do or what he's supposed to look like, but there are certain marks that, that are sort of consistent. Um, and most importantly, Messiah is expected to free the Jews from bondage. Like, this is the big, big thing that everyone is expecting Messiah to do. Um, there is going to be this anointed one. That's what Messiah means. Um, this person chosen by God to free the Jews from the bondage of their oppressors, um, which, again, during the, the exile in Babylon, usually meant Babylonians. After the Greeks took over, it meant the Greeks. And now that the Romans are in power, the Jews are expecting him to kick out the Romans. Um, he's supposed to kick out these power structures and restore the original relationship between the Jews and God. And various writers are a little hedgy about exactly what that looks like. Um, again, like different prophets sort of emphasize different elements. Um, there are certainly prophecies that seem to suggest that this is like a military coup or something that he's going to like kick out, you know, uh, kick out the, the Romans or whoever the oppressors are and then like usher in a new Jerusalem, this, you know, new temple, this re uh, a temple rebuilt where God will like dwell in person the way that he was supposed to when they had the Ark of the Covenant back during the age of Moses and the, the uh, Temple of Solomon. Um, all of this is suggested that, that it's going to happen. Like Daniel has some pretty vivid imagery about this, as well as Ezekiel, sort of anticipating like what's going to happen, and you know after the many many years and decades that are going to transpire. Um, but there's also some strange stuff thrown in. Like Isaiah is very quick to emphasize that he is despised and rejected among men. That he is the stone that the builder refused. Um, now become the head of the corner. Um, at the same time as there are all these suggestions that he's going to like show up with this huge sword and kick everybody's butt and you know free the Jews and everybody's going to be excited about it, there are also all these suggestions that he's kind of not recognized by his own people, that he is a stranger in a strange land, it is put. Um, he is... He doesn't belong here, and people don't recognize him, and they hate him as a consequence. Um, on the one hand, he is supposed to be the inheritor of the kingships, like just as we saw with David and, and Jonathan. Like David was going to be the first great king, and it's going to be his line um, that rules Judea for, for centuries to come. Supposedly, this Messiah is going to be a son of David. He is going to be an, inher an inheritor of that lineage. But at the same time, he is compared to Elijah. He is compared to prophets. Um, he will speak for God in some in some ways, um, and all of this again transpires with the Romans taking over Judea. Like many of these messianic prophecies are flying around, like actual people claiming to be, be the Messiah are showing up periodically and like leading these fairly short-lived movements of kind of like cultural and, and religious revolt, um, and basically it's a powder keg. 
And the Romans know that this is a powder keg. Like, Palestine is a shit assignment for most Roman governors and stuff. You usually get this backwater position if only if you've, like, offended the emperor or offended, you know, whoever is in charge at, at the moment. Um, Palestine sucks as, a, as an imperial posting because the Romans really don't understand what the Jews are on about. Um, the characteristic of Roman religion, which weirdly we have not talked about all that much at this point, is uh, synthetic. Like, the Romans are always happy to introduce more gods into their pantheon. Um, it may strike us as a little strange now, but, like, the Romans played very fast and loose with their, with their religion. Like, yes, they worshipped Jupiter and considered him the greatest of the gods. Yes, yes, they worshipped Mars and considered him, like, especially favorable to Roman society. But also, they would, like, storm into, you know, like, Germania, and they would have these legends about this Loki guy who was apparently a trickster. They'd be like, oh, you're just talking about Mercury. Here, let me fix the name for you. Like, they didn't have a problem with this. The fact that, you know, you had a different name for a god that had similar characteristics of a god that they already worshipped, they'd be totally happy to adopt your god or change his name or whatever. But then they walk into Palestine, they're like, hey, tell us who your gods are so we can adopt them, bring them back to Rome and worship them and, you know, have their favor as well. The Jews are like, dude, you can't do that. Like, our god is one god, you cannot have any other gods if you worship our god, and what's more, he is jealous and he will hurt you if you worship idols. And the Romans are like, well, that's really intolerant. Like, why isn't your god open-minded, like all of our gods? Like, we'd be happy to worship him. We're the greatest empire in the world. Doesn't he want our worship? Um, just, you know, give us the name. And they're like, oh my gosh, you can't say his name. He doesn't have a name. Like, it's a sacred thing. Like, you can't even utter it. Doing so would be taking the Lord's name in vain. So, as a result, the Romans really don't understand Jewish religion and philosophy. And every time that they try and do, you know, typical Roman things, like, we're going to build a temple and we're going to stick all of our gods in it, the Jews lose their shit. And they are freaking out. And they're like, no, this is blasphemy. And there's revolts and destruction eventually it gets so bad that the romans are just like you know what forget it forget it forget it we're not going to hang out in jerusalem yes we're going to have a governor nearby but we're just going to build our own damn city called caesarea and we're going to set it close enough to jerusalem that it will work as the administrative center and all you jews can do whatever your jewish nonsense is and all of us romans are going to do our roman thing and just fine like as long as it keeps the peace as long as it makes you happy whatever who cares um, remember, too, that the Jewish restrictions on cleanliness and stuff really have a lot to do with, like, you cannot interact with non-believers, you cannot interact with Gentiles, and if anything, those rules are getting harder. Um, ever since the return from the exile in Babylon, there has been a determined effort on the part of Jews all over the place, especially since the diaspora has been growing, to sort of practice holiness in their own lives. Um, and the Jews are factionalizing as a consequence. There are sort of groups of religious Jews that are sort of j jockeying for power. Um, and the two major factions at this point are known as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. P.S. The Pharisees get a lot of call-outs in the Sermon on the Mount, so that's why we're bringing them up here. The Pharisees are actually really liberal as Jews go. Like, they're progressive. They are trying to change the old ways. Um, not in a bad way necessarily. If anything, they're insisting that the rules need to become more strict. And the Pharisees are sort of imposing all these new rules 
untypical Jewish practices to sort of protect and keep people away from committing the really bad sins. So if, for example, like the the um, there's the, the Ten Commandments and you've got things like do not steal, do not covet, do not commit adultery, the Pharisees will be like, well, we can do better than that. Let's just make it so, like, nobody can even see other women. Like, let's make it so, you know, you're not allowed to look at other women or you're not allowed to, you know, look at other people's stuff. Like, what if instead of, you know, we always honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, we also emphasize that, like, we're just not even going to work at all. Like, we're, we're, you're required to be in your house at the end of the day and you're only allowed to walk like 30 feet during the entire day and you're only allowed to do like these sorts of tasks and you can't even cook that day like why risk it why risk breaking a commandment let's just make it so it's all against the rules um and the pharisees are fairly insistent about this but there's sort of there's a secondary purpose behind it Ever since the exile into Babylon, ever since the Greeks took over the place and wrecked up Jerusalem a couple of times, there are Jews all over the ancient world. This is what's called the diaspora. Um, there are Jews in Greece, and there are Jews in Asia Minor, and there are Jews in Rome, and there are Jews in Africa. Like, you name it, there's probably a population of Jews there. They probably have their own synagogue. They have probably practiced their own worship. But importantly, they probably can't get back to Jerusalem every year. Which you'll remember from our Leviticus discussion that most of the rules, most of the laws about sacrifices have to do with the temple. Like you've got to be in Jerusalem to celebrate Yom Kippur. You've got to be in Jerusalem to perform a sin offering. You've got to be in Jerusalem in order to, you know, perform any of the major sacrifices that are necessary for basically day-to-day -day life in Jewish culture. So the Pharisees, in addition to sort of making the rules more strict, are also making them more personal. They're downplaying the sacrifices in favor of personal purification, personal sort of self-government, personal self-discipline. Um, they're making it possible to be a Jew and not live in Jerusalem. Um, they're basically allowing for the possibility of a Jew in Greece or a Jew in Rome. Um, the temple is no longer the center of religious life. Instead, it's the law that is the center of religious life, um, which arguably it always was. Like, the temple was constructed because of the law. Um, but at the same time, it is, in fact, changing a little bit. Um, by contrast, the Sadducees are very hardcore, conservative, traditional Jews. They do not like all of these new additions that the Pharisees keep bringing up. Um, and in fact, one of the major things that seems to separate the Sadducees from the other sort of uh, religious factions is this idea of uh, life after death. Um, in the Jewish Old Testament, there is not a whole lot of discussion of what happens to you after death. Like, you go to Sheol, which is basically just death. Like, it's comparable to Hades and the Greek, because, like, Hades is not a place where you go and have a good life. It's just a place where you go when you die. The Jews seem to have something similar. Like, you die and you stop being a thing, and that's all there is to it. Um, but there are groups like the Essenes who are sort of insisting that the soul is immortal, that you, in fact, live on after your death perhaps because of the interactions that Judaism has been having with Plato and all of his insistence on immortality after death. Um, at any rate, whatever the cause, however it got involved, there's apparently a huge discussion happening 
among the Jewish groups, like in Jewish diaspora, about is the soul, you know, immortal or is it mortal? You know, how does this work? Is there like a way that you can sort of go to quote Abraham's bosom, which is like the best description of, you know, what the Christians will call heaven. Um, that the Jews are likely to come up, come up with, or is death just death and that's all there is to it, and the best that you can hope for is that the generations after you will honor your name and remember you. Um, the Sadducees are very much on the side of there is no life after death. There is no bodily resurrection. Like People are just going to die and be dead, and that's all there is to it. Um, and they will typically go around and make sort of nuisances of themselves by poking holes in Pharisee arguments um, to, with that in mind. Now, in the middle of all of this kind of political infighting, the complexity and the way that the actual Jewish faith is sort of divided at this point, as well as the complexity between the Roman and the Jewish influences here, with like the complexity of, you know, Jewish self-rule versus Roman oversight, as well as these messianic prophecies, all of a sudden we get one guy who shows up and really kicks over all of the apple carts, namely Jesus. Um... Right in the middle of all this giant mess, all this stress, all this potential revolution, all of this political tension, all this religious tension, this dude shows up and starts saying that everyone is wrong. And he does mean everyone. Like you'll notice in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus very much emphasizes that in order to be holy, in order to reach the kingdom of heaven, you not just have to follow the Pharisees' rules, you have to be better than them because the Pharisees frequently engage in hypocrisy. And he's calling out the major religious faction here among Jews. Um, at the same time, this random Jew from Nazareth is apparently fraternizing with Roman centurions and hanging out with Gentiles, which, as you'll remember, is very forbidden. And yet some of them seem to believe in him, and he seems to respond not to their heritage, but to their faith. Um, there's at least one story of a centurion coming up to Jesus and being like, my daughter is sick, can you heal her? And Jesus is like, sure, because of your faith, she will be healed. And he's like, oh, you don't have to come to the house. Like, if I need something done, I'm just going to send a servant, and they'll take care of it. Like, I assume that you can do the same thing, what with being like God or something. And Jesus is like, your faith is more impressive than anything I've ever seen. Go, your daughter is already upright and, like, going around the house. Everything is fine. Um, and the centurion's like, cool. And people are like flabbergasted. Why is Jesus doing favors for the Roman military? Like, why is he, you know, giving preferential treatment to Gentiles who are oppressing us and also bad-mouthing the religious leaders who are supposed to defend our rights? This is not normal Messiah behavior. But that is, at the end of the day, what this comes down to. After Jesus goes around doing some teaching, doing some healing, making some fairly objectionable comments, which we will come back to, um, at the end of the day, people get really mad at him, as you would expect. Um, like, there are a number of things that he does that the Jews are absolutely not on board with. Not just, you know, hanging out with Romans, who generally everybody frowns upon anyway, because, again, the Jews see the Romans as their enemies. But also, like, Jesus says some things that really tick people off. Um, on one particular occasion, he is shown to this 
poor lame beggar and the beggar is sitting on his pallet and it is sunday of course or rather it is the sabbath day so saturday um and jesus comes up to this guy's pallet and he like everybody's whispering like is he gonna heal him is he gonna heal him if he heals him on the sabbath isn't that wrong like this is an opportunity for us to show jesus up for being you know unholy and blasphemous and jesus comes up to this guy and he says uh he says your sins are forgiven and everyone's like, what? Nobody gets to forgive sins. That's a God thing. You do not have the authority to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. And God only forgives sins when you perform all the sacrifices. And you do, like something has to die. Something has to lose their blood in order for sins to be forgiven. And Jesus is like, dude, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or rise, get up and walk? And he's like, P.S., rise, get up and walk. And the beggar gets up. Apparently his lame leg is now fully healed. He picks up his pallet and he just takes off. So now everyone's ticked because not only did Jesus perform a healing on the Sabbath, but he also apparently claims to have the authority to, you know, forgive sins, something that only God is supposed to be able to do, and only through certain sort of avenues. So everybody is mad about this. On a separate occasion, they're coming to Jesus and they're kind of like asking him a bunch of obnoxious questions and Jesus is getting more and more fed up with them. And finally they're like, dude, what are you talking about? We are all forgiven. We are sons of Abraham. And Jesus is like, guys, I could rise, I could make sons of Abraham out of these rocks right here. Before Abraham was, I am. And everybody loses their minds. When Jesus says, I am, and especially in the context before Abraham was, I am, like, obviously he's positing that, like, he existed before Abraham, which is ridiculous, and everybody knows that this is ridiculous. There's no way that this guy could be immortal and be, like, 5,000 years old at this point. Like, no way on, nope, nope, not buying it. But the fact that he says, I am, that is the sacred name of God. That is the Tetragrammaton, as we probably discussed. I don't remember whether we discussed it in our Old Testament lecture. Suffice it to say that when God introduces himself to Moses, and Moses is like, God, I don't want to go and, like, do miracles and stuff. That sounds scary and also hard. How will they even know that, like, I'm your servant? Uh, why don't you just tell me your name, and then I'll tell them your name, and they'll, they'll know that I was sent you. And God's like, I am that I am. And Moses is like, oh, crap! Like... Jesus uses the very same name here. Before Abraham was, I am. He is unequivocally stating that he is God. And that is the highest blasphemy that anyone can perform. So it is said that as soon as he says this, the, Jew, the Jews immediately pick up stones to stone him, like right there, on the spot. Dude is not going to get out of this square without being killed by rocks being chucked at his face. He somehow manages to slip out because, you know, Jesus, like, presumably if he can heal beggars and forgive sins and, you know, bring back to life little girls from miles away, he can also escape from an angry mob. Uh, he successfully extricates himself, but the fact of the matter is, this is making him public enemy number one for basically everybody at this point. He is stirring up unrest among the Jews because they're now very much at odds about this. And he's like stirring up the rabble because, again, there's this Messiah prophecy that says he's going to kick out the Romans. So the Romans are really upset about this. Like, he's obviously making trouble. But the Romans generally don't want to get involved in this shit. Like... 
Jews have their own problems. Jews do their religious thing. It's not something the Romans understand. So, you know, you guys just take care of your own crap. By contrast, the Jews are getting more and more worked up because now he has violated some important rules on their behalf. If he said that he was God, that's the highest blasphemy there is. This guy needs to be stopped. What's more, because the Pharisees are frequently getting picked on by this guy, and the Sadducees are frequently being embarrassed by this guy, they're plotting against him too. Everybody wants this dude dead. And they get that. At long last, it's time for the Passover celebration, the huge feast in Jerusalem, like everybody in the area is coming back to Jerusalem, the place is packed with all these Jews from out of the out of the area who are like staying there to participate in the celebration. All the rooms are packed, the hotels are packed, there's Jews everywhere, the Romans are getting especially touchy because again, every single one of the major revolutions that has taken place has always taken place during one of these big holy festivals and Passover is one of the biggest and holiest and most inclined to revolution. So tempers are flaring really high right here. And Jesus comes to town to celebrate the Passover celebration. And since he's in town, the, the authorities, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, recognize this is probably their time to strike. So they make a deal with one of Jesus' followers, namely Ju Judas, who will live in infamy forever as being the betrayer of Jesus. Um, G Judas leads uh, Jesus into their hands at the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Sadducees and the Pharisees take him prisoner. They have a sham trial where they basically accuse him of blaspheming, and honestly, like he did, and at one point during the interrogation, he also utters something that is basically a blasphemy, and everybody's like, well, that answers that question. We don't need any more witnesses, do we? Um, they smack him around a bit, they torture him for a while, and then finally they hand him over to the Roman authorities in the hopes that they'll have him executed. And the Roman authority, namely Pilate, he doesn't actually know what to do in this situation. Again, he doesn't like dealing with the religious elements of Jewish life. This is sort of above his pay grade. He's kind of made an arrangement with the Pharisees and the Sadducees that, you know, they take care of their shit and the Romans will take care of theirs. But in this particular situation, the Pharisees are angling for a public execution and they can't do it themselves because the Romans sort of guarantee that privilege to themselves. So the Pharisees hand them hand Jesus over to Pilate, hoping that, like, Jesus is going to, you know, offend Pilate and that they'll be able to kill him. And Pilate knows that this is a delicate situation, is basically what this comes down to. And after a little bit of hemming and hawing, Pilate ultimately decides that, you know, he hasn't done anything to break Roman law, so there's no reason why the Romans are upset with him, but he recognizes that if the, he doesn't do something about this, literally this delicate political situation is going to erupt. So he decides he's going to use the system. Um, every year at Passover they release a noted political prisoner to the Jews because the Jews, you know, like, are usually riled up at this point in time and a vote of good confidence on the part of the Romans is usually helpful to keeping everything fairly quiet. Um, so at last Pilate decides, hey, I'll just release this Jesus guy to the Jews. Like, when, when we all offer to release a prisoner, I'll release Jesus. Everybody's happy. Like, you know, what are the Pharisees going to do? Like, yeah, I released him. You guys had your chance, but, you know, every, every, he's such a popular hero, why wouldn't they pick him? Um, so Pilate's like, okay, crowd assembled at the steps of my palace. 
Um, I'm going to release a prisoner, as is Roman tradition, because we Romans love you and we don't want you to kill us. Um, do you want me to release Jesus of Nazareth, noted teacher, healer, really awesome dude who apparently, like, he's offended some people for some reason? Or do you want me to release Barabbas, the revolutionary and murderer who is totally a jerk and maybe don't pick him? And everybody starts chanting, we want Barabbas, we want Barabbas, because they've been paid off by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Pilate's like, god damn it, like... I had this plan, it was going to be great, and now it's all ruined. So Pilate is like, but what about Jesus? Like, I thought you liked Jesus. He was a cool guy. That was a couple weeks ago. He, like, came in and you all had palm fronds and stuff. Like, what happened to there? And they're like, crucify him! Which is the way that the Romans would typically punish these capital crimes. Um, the punishment for being a revolutionary or being a traitor would be you'd get literally nailed to a stick of wood, like, by your hands and by your feet, and you would just sit there bleeding until finally your chest gave out and you'd asphyxiate. It is not a pleasant way to die. Again, the Romans were not nice people when it comes to public displays of power and public displays of punishment. So, Pilate is finally like, you really want me to crucify Mr. Nice Guy? Mr. You know, Blessed Are the Meek? Mr. Love Thy Neighbor as Thyself? Like, seriously? And they're like, crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate's like, alright, fine. You know what? Bring me a basin of water. I'll wash my hands of all this. Like, you want to kill him? Fine. He's dead, but be it on your own head. And they're like, yes! We take his blood gladly! Remember this. It's important. Um, finally, Pilate's like, fine, whatever. He gives Jesus over to the proper authorities. A couple days later, they march him out. They nail him to a cross, and he dies crucified in the middle of the afternoon. In theory, this is how this story should supposedly end, but it doesn't. A couple days later, a bunch of his followers show up to his tomb, roll away the stone to, in, or, in order to take care of his body, and what do you know? Jesus isn't there. According to, uh, to local reports, like, there is an angel sitting in the tomb saying, Why are you looking for him here? He is risen! So, remember that time that we thought that we could, like, kill this dude and all of our problems will be, would be solved? Well, it's definitely more complicated than that. Now, obviously, whether or not Jesus actually resurrected is kind of the central miracle at the entire core of Christian faith. Like... There's definitely a lot of question here, and atheists are quick to say, there's no way he resurrected, that's scientifically impossible, but that seems to, like, not understand exactly how miracles are supposed to work. Likewise, Christians are like, hey, look at all this evidence, there are all these witnesses who say that, they could, that Jesus appeared to them days after his death, and there are all these people who, you know, claim to follow Jesus even after he died, like, isn't that great evidence? And, you know, the atheists are like, oh, it's all circumstantial, and around and around and around we go. What's important for our purposes is understanding what this means. Like, the historical bit here is pretty well attested. Um, the Gospels may not be 100% reliable. Again, there's always going to be discussion about exactly, like, who wrote them, why they wrote them, what their objectives were, where, where, when were they written, can we trust them, are they authoritative accounts? Like, that conversation will happen forever. But insofar as it seems that there was this dude who was crucified, and apparently everybody says that he came back to life, like, even some of the Roman authorities are kind of like, yeah, that happened. We're not sure why, we're not sure what went down. Palestine is a mess at the best of times, but it seems that something was going down in Palestine around this time. Couldn't tell you what, though. Um, 
here's the interpretation, or let's say the various interpretations here. Um, for the Jews, Jesus is not the Messiah. He is disqualified on a number of counts. For one thing, he blasphemed, and that's not acceptable. There is like nothing in the Messiah scriptures that seem to suggest very strongly that the Messiah is also supposed to be God, much less that you know he has all this authority. Furthermore, if the fundamental basic thing that Messiah is supposed to do is like kick out the Romans, well, that's not what Jesus did. Like the Romans were still there. In fact, fifty years or like twenty years later, um, the there's another revolution, and like the Romans get so mad that they like bulldoze the the temple of Solomon, and they literally kick all the Jews out of Jerusalem. Like they took the whole turned the whole place into a parking lot, basically. Um, so obviously, Roman rule has not been completely overturned by Jesus. So again, very much a demerit against his the possibility of him actually being Messiah. Um, and as a consequence to this day, Jews are still waiting for the Messiah to show up. Like, they do not hold that Jesus is that guy. Um, they don't think that he fits the criteria. Messiah, you know, is likely to show up any day now. Who knows? Could be any time. Maybe sooner, maybe later. Who knows? Um, or maybe this is an allegorical thing or a symbolic thing. Like, maybe there will not be some actual Messiah. Like, different groups of Jews will think different things about this. Um, but for the Christians, which is, you know, obviously what we're going to be talking about primarily in this class because it's so influential and will involve so much, uh, will sort of rope in so many philosophers in the future. For the Christians, Jesus was not just Messiah, Jesus was God, as that I am line would seem to suggest. Um, and they point to a lot of the prophecies and sit and specifically talk about how Jesus fulfills them like in the Gospel of Matthew especially he's very quick to point out like oh he was born in Bethlehem just like it said in Micah and oh he was you know rejected and refused just like it said in Isaiah and oh he tore the like went upon his death the veil covering the Holy of Holies tore from top to bottom just like it was written here and just as would be suggested in the Jewish you know uh, theological tradition if in fact this major change was about to occur like there are a lot of Christian apologists who say, hey, Jews, this is the guy. He fits all the criteria. He does all the right stuff. Yes, it wasn't what we expected. He didn't, in fact, kick out the Romans, but he has fundamentally changed the relationship between God and humans. He did, in fact, perform miracles as prescribed, as expected. And that death on the cross thing, as dishonorable as it was, like there are multiple passages in the Old Testament that say that you are like, radically unclean and defiled if you die on a tree even if he was defiled even if he was you know hated and rejected well that was also within the parameters of what uh, what messiah was supposed to be just take a look at isaiah sometime so by the christian logic jesus was the messiah he is the prophesized figure to save the jews but it's more complicated than that when jesus dies which, again, this seems to be a fairly major disqualifying issue here. Like, even in Islam, Jesus is largely revered as a prophet. Like, uh, in the, the Quran itself, like, it states that Jesus was this really important prophet, but a failed prophet specifically because he died. He failed because he did not successfully communicate without being killed. Um, so as much as that seems to be a problem, Christians are arguing instead that this is actually exactly what Jesus was supposed to be doing. Remember, as we talked about in our Old Testament discussion and elsewhere, to correct sin requires sacrifice. 
Like, all those Leviticus laws about the sin offering mean that you have to bring some animal to the altar, you have to kill it, the priests have to perform this ceremony, they will sprinkle the blood on your head, and it's just like all of your sins have been moved into this animal, and now that the animal is dead, the sins are destroyed. Like, your, your record is clean. You and God are square. Your sins are forgiven. Um, and since, again, as we talked about with the Old Testament and the, the Garden of Eden and stuff, since the wages of sinners is death, since everything that sins dies, you are now protected from that. Um, you will not have to die because your sins have been eradicated. They have been forgiven. How Christians interpret the death of Jesus is that Jesus was a sacrifice. A sacrifice performed by God with the express like permission and sort of uh, expiation of the Jews that were involved in the same way that a sin offering would be. So, for example, like the big, the big festival of the year in Judaism, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, um, the way that this festival is celebrated is the high priest has this goat. This is the scapegoat. This is where we get this term. Um, and everybody in the society, like literally all Israelites, all Jews, are supposed to place their hand on the goat and by doing so symbolically transfer their sins from themselves to the goat. Um, and then after everybody does this, the high priest leads the goat out of the city, takes him to some distant place where presumably its death will not infect anyone, kills the goat, collect it, collects its blood, and sprinkles the blood on the one hand, in front of the Holiest of Holies at the Ark of the Covenant, you know, as long as that's still around, um, thus symbolizing God's recognition that these prices have been paid, the sins are now forgiven, and then sprinkling it also on the people of Israel, symbolizing that they too participate in this sacrifice. They willingly give it up. They put the sins on the scapegoat. The scapegoat is taken outside and killed, and as a consequence, their sins are forgiven. The sins of the nation are forgiven. Notice that the exact same pattern occurs with Jesus in this case. Jesus is marked. He is despised. He is marked for execution. And notice that when Pilate says, you know, far be it from me, let this blood be on your own head, the Jews willingly accept it in the same way as it would be appropriate in the ceremony. As a consequence, they transfer their sins to Jesus. Jesus now carries all of the sins of the entire collective Jewish nation. Then he is led out of the city to the execution site on Golgotha and killed, just like the goat would be. And in so doing, all of everybody's sins are forgiven. But what's more, the Christians emphasize that since Jesus isn't just any old sacrifice, isn't just some unblemished lamb, isn't just some sinless individual, but also God, since this is not just, you know, the Son of God in the sense that all of us are sons of God, but he is the one and only begotten, firstborn Son of God, and God himself, that sacrifice is not just, you know, for everybody at this moment, but for everybody always. It is of eternal weight. You know, a lamb can successfully bear some sins, and by killing it, you can get some sins forgiven for a short period of time. Because it is God himself nailed to that cross, sacrificed for the sake of, of the sins of the community, this is a sacrifice potent enough, strong enough, and holy enough to be a sacrifice for all people at all times, 
once for all sins. Jesus is the one sacrifice. And that's why Christians get super excited about the blood of Jesus Christ. As morbid and sick as that may sound, it's because the blood of Jesus Christ is shed in the same way as a sacrifice's blood would be shed. And as a consequence, no consequences exist for our sins. Everybody is forgiven across the board. Everyone can participate in this sacrifice. All they need to do is accept it recognize that Jesus Christ died for their sins, accept that sacrifice, and then follow God in the future, which is, of course, where things get a little trickier. Um, this is the fundamental Christian truth. Like, this is the capital G gospel as it is presented. Um, and I try to present it to all of my students. In fact, because, you know, on the one hand, I am a Christian and I am all, I am trying to indoctrinate you into my faith, um, but also because you need to understand this in order to understand exactly how love works um, from a philosophical perspective for Christians. Like, you've got to understand the sacrifice that is made here in order to understand why God is love, according to John in John 1, or why, you know, sex is still off limits for uh, a lot of situations in, in Paul's 1 Corinthians. Like, this is the story, start to finish. There was a good world ruined by humans, sin entered the world, and now everyone has to die, or rather something has to die for the sake of those sins, because you can perform these propitiatory sacrifices. Fortunately, we have a sacrifice, Jesus, who happens to also be God himself, and by sacrificing Jesus, everyone can be, can be sinless by accepting that sacrifice, by accepting that their sins are forgiven through this sacrifice. That's the way it works. One through line from the very beginning of the Old Testament all the way through to Revelation. Now, if you're still sitting there asking, well, what about that whole kicking the butt of the Roman Empire? Like, isn't Messiah still supposed to be performing certain responsibilities? Christians get a little uncomfortable about that one. Um, like, yes, they, he is, in fact, supposed to do those things, and those prophecies have not yet been fulfilled. According to Christian theology and Christian tradition, Jesus showed up the first time to do all the big sin-forgiving things. And yes, that involved dying on a cross, and obviously he couldn't very well like kick the butt of all the Romans and also die on a cross at the same time. Um, that would be a little awkward. So instead, Jesus is coming back. Like, Jesus himself, according to Christian teaching, said that he was coming back. Like, there would be a second coming, so to speak. And that's where we get all into the, all the crazy revelation stuff. Now, admittedly, the Roman Empire isn't a big deal anymore, but, like, Christians still kind of see antichrists and, like, despicable, tyrannical authorities that Jesus needs to help us, like, solve and escape from all over the place. Like, throughout history, there have been so many comparisons of, like, who is the antichrist at any given moment, um, because Christians are constantly waiting for the second coming. Like, seriously. Um, you'll notice in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about this, like, it could happen any day now, and he's writing in, like, 50 BC or 50 CE like 20 years after Jesus's death everybody is still buzzing about this everybody is convinced that his comeback should be like literally at any moment that it is imminent as the New Testament talks about and as a consequence Christians then Christians now and Christians at every time in between have waited for Jesus to come in their lifetimes in the same way um, they have expected it at any moment they plan on the second coming and like I said, that's where all the cool stuff of Revelation happens. Like, you know, earthquakes that destroy a third of the population, or the rivers turning to blood, or the moon falling out of the sky, or, like, giant asteroids made of wood, like, poisoning all of Earth's rivers. Like, 
yeah, Revelation is nutty, nutty stuff, and unfortunately we don't get to talk about it more in here because it's not terribly related to love. Um, but suffice it to say for our purposes that that's the Christian endpoint, that eventually all the rest of the prophecies will in fact be fulfilled when Jesus comes again, and there's this huge war and death and horror and blood and all that stuff. So, good times. Now, let's talk about this, because obviously there's a ton to unpack here more than just the story of how the gospel works from this kind of mechanical perspective. Um, for one thing, I want to sort of touch on the stuff that I included in our reading, because um, there's a lot of important sort of details here. And this is, again, hardly comprehensive. Obviously, the New Testament is significantly larger than, like, the 17 pages I picked out here. Um, I want to stress to, like, exactly how the New Testament works. Like, I stressed this a little bit when we were talking about the Old Testament. I mentioned that, you know, the Old Testament is actually a number of different books composed by a number of different writers over a long period of time, and scholars are still, you know, the jury is out as far as, like, did, this, did Moses actually write the Pentateuch? Was it actually written when it was supposed to have written? Or did somebody else write it more recently? Like, it's super complicated with the Old Testament, and it's pretty complicated with the New Testament as well. Um, the major difference here is that the entirety of the New Testament was composed in probably about an 80-year span. Like, the earliest texts were probably some of Paul's letters, including the letters to the Romans, the First Thessalonians letter, um, Galatians, and indeed First Corinthians, which were probably all written between like 40 and 60 B or CE, so like 10 to 30 years after Jesus lived. Um, the Gospels were likely composed significantly after that, probably between like 70 and 90 CE or AD, with John's Gospel possibly being the outlier here. Many scholars think that it was composed significantly later, um, in part because John actually lived longer than most of the other authors, in part because John is so different that scholars frequently think that it wasn't John who wrote it. Again, there's the whole thing. Um, but I want to emphasize, for our purposes, that there are very different styles and structures and writers at stake in the New Testament. And our little excerpt involves no less than five different writers, I think, four different writers. Um, yeah, so first off we need to talk about the Gospels. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the Synoptic Gospels because they have a ton of stuff in common and they seem to have come from common sources. Um, so Matthew and Luke agree on a ton of stuff. They do disagree about certain things, like Luke has some stuff that Matthew doesn't, Matthew has some stuff that Luke doesn't, but for the most part they all contain most of the same events, like Jesus feeds the 5,000, or, you know, the, the whole, like, passion narrative and all the details there. Like, it seems that Matthew and Luke seem to actually be reading and, like, copying parts of Mark in their accounts. Um, John, however, is a whole different ballgame. Like, John has a very different style, a very different agenda, a very different set of goals, very different writings, and he is the one that most emphasizes Jesus' divinity as compared to Matthew and, and Mark and Luke. Like, there's a lot of different priorities going on in John, and, you know, we should be aware of that. You'll also notice that I didn't include anything from John's Gospel, largely because I did include one of John's letters, 1 John, which is the love letter. Um, in the great Christian tradition. Like, this is where it is famously said that God is love, so naturally I wanted to include it. We'll talk about that in a little bit. 
Um, so the two writers that we do have for Gospels are Matthew and Luke. Um, Matthew, because I wanted to include his account of the Sermon on the Mount, because I think that was super important for understanding how Christians understand relationships. The Sermon on the Mount is like one of the crucial texts in Christianity for understanding how relationships between people are supposed to work. And you'll notice that frequently Jesus talks about love there, and more frequently Jesus talks about motivation. Um, we'll get back to that. Um, Luke is more the, like, he is more of the literature gospel. Um, he likes to use stylistic flourishes, and he does a lot of stories that Jesus tells outside of what Mark and Matthew report. Um, including, of course, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which I really wanted to include for a couple reasons that, again, we'll get into. Um, but I cannot talk about any of this without mentioning Paul. Um, Paul is the writer of 1 Corinthians, like we include him as the last of our readings for today, although arguably he was the, probably the first composed. Um, Paul is a hugely important writer in the Christian tradition, even though Paul was not one of the twelve disciples, John and Matthew were, um, as well as Peter, who is the guy who, like Mark, comes from. Luke was not one of Jesus' followers, but Luke hung around with Paul a lot and did a lot of research. Um, if his if like the product is anything to go by, especially because he also records acts, it's a whole thing. Um, but I want to emphasize, Paul is kind of a disciple by proxy. Even though he didn't hang around with Jesus back when Jesus was bumming around talking to people, making trouble with the Pharisees, and so on and so forth, when Judas is kind of run out of being a an apostle due to the fact that he you know betrayed Jesus and then commits suicide over it. Um, the disciples actually find a couple of replacements. First they get Stephen, who's apparently really cool, but also shoots his mouth off and very much gets stoned uh, almost immediately after he joins up. Um, Paul, on the other hand, is probably one of the guys who helped stone Stephen, but Paul has this radical conversion on the road to Damascus uh, while he's persecuting Christians, and Jesus apparently like shows up to him directly and is like, uh, Paul, you can stop that now. In fact, I'm going to make you my friend, and you're going to like preach the word for me. And he strikes Paul blind, it's this whole thing. Um, anyway, Paul becomes the Christian missionary to the Gentiles. He is working like crazy for the next pile of years, setting up churches all over the Mediterranean world. Um, especially in Asia Minor, like we get churches all throughout Asia Minor. This is where uh, Corinth is actually in Greece, but this is where we get like Philippi and Colossae and a bunch of his, his letters. Um, he also sets up church in, churches in Greece. Like he tries to set one up in Athens and they won't have it because there are too many philosophers there and you know they've heard a lot of this stuff before um, and they absolutely will not buy when, when Paul is like, yes, and we're all going to get our bodies back when we resurrect. And they're like, dude, Plato told us all about like eternal life. We don't need bodies, man. Man, get these bodies out of here. Bodies suck. So Paul doesn't make any traction there. But he does set up churches in Corinth. He does set up churches throughout Greece uh, besides Athens. He also is instrumental in the growth of the church at Rome. I.e., yes, there is a church in Rome. It's actually really important and will thrive in generations to come. This will be one day the center of Christendom, uh, which is where we get into, like, Peter was the bishop in the Church of Rome, and then that makes him the Pope, and now Popes hang out in Rome, and not in Constantinople. Uh, like, it's a whole thing. We'll probably end up talking about this more when we get to Augustine and, and 
medieval Christian philosophy um, because there's a lot there to talk about as well. Um, but Paul's a big deal. Paul is very much sort of the number one theologian of the New Testament. Like, if the Gospels are the accounts of what Jesus said, did, and all of that, like, direct activity, um, it is Paul who does all the legwork of turning this into a system, making it into something that fits together neatly, where all of the pieces come together, and we understand things like Jesus died, and everybody can just be Jesus' friends, be Christians, by believing in him. No other requirement. But Paul also has a slightly different attitude as a consequence. And I want to sort of highlight that here. Again, one of the things that I want to remark upon, like, as much as the New Testament is considered like this one body of literature and it's all inspired by God and Christians will absolutely defend this to their dying breath, um, Christians at the time actually really liked the fact that there were multiple attitudes, multiple perspectives, multiple accounts here. That's why they include four Gospels instead of just being like, well, Matthew's obviously the best Gospel, so why do we need any others? Um, no, the Christians actually were really open-minded to different views. Especially in the early Roman period, Christians were very much persecuted. Like, the, the, uh, the Roman Empire did not see a distinction between Judaism and Christianity in its earliest stages. So when the Jews are getting up in Jerusalem, the emperor at the time, like, I believe it's Nero, issues this just blanket edict that, like, all Jews and Christians will systematically be, you know, rooted out of the empire because they're, you know, blaspheming against Jupiter and therefore, you know, are, are causing potential threats to the empire and, and like, undermining our, our unity. Um, like, Christians will get persecuted a lot in the first few hundred years of their existence, um, which, again, we'll probably talk about when we get to Augustine. Um, but significantly for our purposes, um, it's important to notice that the Christians, as a consequence, were scattered. There wasn't some kind of central Christian church. Like, initially it was going to be in Jerusalem. Like, when Paul, in fact, does have to report to his superiors after, like, going off and founding a bunch of churches, um, he's reporting to Jerusalem, where there's, like, this council between, you know, Peter and the other disciples and James, the brother of Jesus, and they're all hanging out together and talking about, okay, what is, in fact, our plan going forward? But it's shortly after this that, again, like I said, the, you know, Jews have this uprising, the temple is destroyed, and everybody's kicked out of Jerusalem, and James in the process is beheaded. Oops. Um again, this happens to a lot of Christians over the next few centuries. Um, so the central Christian church like evaporates very early on in this process. And as a consequence, the Christians start to grow up thinking that it's really cool that different churches have different experiences. Um, in fact, all of the letters that are included, like the epistles of Paul, the letter to the Corinthians, the letter of the, to the Galatians, the letter to the Philippians, the two letters to the Thessalonians, the letter to the Romans, the letter to the Colossians, the letter to the Ephesians, like all of these churches have these letters and they start copying them and circulating them. The churches have a distinct identity, but they also have this unity and they share the wisdom of the apostles that have come before. But, and I should stress this, this does not a canon make. Like, I know we just talked about canon with um, Cicero. Well, surprise, Christian canon is perhaps one of the most important in the history of canons, um, besides, like, you know, the metal things that shoot shot at people. Um, the Christian canon was gradual. It did not emerge overnight. Um, there was a lot of discussion about what should be included in the Christian canon, and there is a lot of discussion today. 
Um, in fact, I know a lot of people, a lot of atheists especially, who will sort of come out guns blazing saying, you can't trust the New Testament because Paul didn't really write that or John didn't really write that or Matthew didn't really write that. Like, none of the authors are true and we've mixed up the, the text so many times in 2,000 years and, you know, nothing in the Bible is what it's supposed to be. That's very much an exaggeration and this is one of the first major like internet grievances against christianity that i do in fact want to put right um honestly the new testament is shockingly well attested um like shockingly well attested um if you in fact go into sort of manuscript studies of ancient texts like if you want to study you know the iliad and the odyssey a 2700 year old text you're going to be working from like three, four, maybe five manuscripts total of various ages. Certainly nothing that comes close to being 2,700 years old. Um, by contrast, if you're going to study the New Testament, you are going to sift through thousands of manuscripts copied and recopied over these 2,000 years. And the earliest of those manuscripts date to within like 150 years of the actual texts being written. Like, because Christians were so keen to, like, quote these famous apostles, they, they enshrined these apostles' writings so quickly, um, they became a sort of pseudo-canon very quickly. And as much as there were a lot of pseudepigraphical works circulating at the same time, like the Shepherd of Hermas, which was supposedly written by Peter, or the Gospel of Thomas, supposedly written by Thomas, those were extremely poorly attested. And... When ultimately all the Christians got together and were like, okay, so what is actually going to be the New Testament? What is actually going to be the sacred text that we consider the foundation of Christianity? They were very rigorous about rooting out anything that wasn't written by who they thought it was written by. Um, now, they made mistakes. Like, the, the epistle to the Hebrews was supposedly written by Paul, and that's why it was included, but it has since been sort of widely debunked that nobody thinks that Paul wrote it anymore. Like, for one thing, nobody says that Paul wrote it in the epistle. Um, but at the same time, like, it's not Pauline in structure. Like, the grammar is very different. The style is very different. Like, having translated some of Paul's letters and also the epistle of the Hebrews, I can tell you, it's a completely different ballgame. Like, whoever wrote the Hebrews was working more in the Attic style than they were in the, the uh, Koine or, or New Testament style. Um, so yes, mistakes were made, but they tended to be fairly short. Um, and at the end of the day, like with the exception of Hebrews, which again, like people were willing to, to accept even if they didn't think that Paul wrote it just because they thought it was so important, the text that is probably the least well attested is, weirdly enough, Second Peter. Like everybody was apparently on the fence about Second Peter back in like the fourth or fifth century when they were hashing all this out. Um, they couldn't tell whether Peter actually wrote Second Peter or not. But literally everything else, including all of the really important stuff, like Romans, um, like those central theological texts that Paul supposedly wrote, like nobody doubts those. Romans, Galatians, 1 Corinthians, um, Colossians and Ephesians are a bit of another, another story, but that's kind of a mess in its own right. 1 Thessalonians, like these are all so well attested and so obviously Pauline that like no scholar worth their salt like questions these texts um likewise as much as mark is has mark's name on it and not peter's most scholars accept the authority of mark as a gospel um, and therefore by extension they accept all of the chunks of matthew and luke that borrow from mark 
Um, it is generally considered that Luke wrote Luke and Acts. Like, just, just about everybody agrees with that. Um, there is some question about how much of John's supposed writings were in fact written by John. Uh, Revelation is especially dubious in contemporary scholarly circles. But if you're sitting there thinking, you know, there's no part of the New Testament that you can read that is authoritative, that reflects, you know, what people were reading and, and studying like a thousand, two thousand years ago, that's just not true. Um, most of these texts were attested as early as like 200 AD and we still have subs surviving manuscripts from that time period. Um, if you do want to poke fingers and, and shed doubt on things, yeah, look at Second Peter, look at the pastoral epistles, Timothy and Titus. Um, those are significantly more dubious in scholarly circles. But I should emphasize that, you know, everything that is included in the New Testament is way better attested than anything that was excluded. So if your argument on the internet is, what about the Gospel of Thomas? Why doesn't anybody take that seriously? There's a very obvious reason, because it obviously wasn't written by Thomas. Like, no extant version of this existed until long after Thomas was already dead. Like, scholars at the time were like, no, that's garbage, and nobody like that's definitely not an original christian text like the gnostic gospels like thomas all were created by gnostics with a specific agenda in mind like if you're trying to to sort of sell me on you know gnosticism as the real truth of christianity no no it doesn't um the new testament is older than the gnostic gospels the new testament is older than almost any of the gnostic teachings um, most of those texts, as exciting as they may be to unearth and study and sort of compare and contrast with the other New Testament writings, like nobody in their right mind back in, you know, the scholarly world in, in AD 2-300 would have accepted these texts and you should not be holding them up as sort of these paradigmatic examples of why the New Testament is lying to us. Um, there's just no evidence for it. Like, I'm a philosopher, I'm a skeptic, yes, I am defensive of Christianity, I will admit my bias there, but I am more than willing to accept that Second Peter may have not been written by Peter, that the pastoral epistles may not have been written by Paul, despite the fact that I have definitely ruffled some feathers in seminary over these things, and yet I am not going to buy your Gospel of Thomas argument, not within an inch of your life. Like, if you're going to get critical about the stuff that's in the New Testament, you better not come at me with, you know, this stuff that clearly doesn't belong there. Um, so that's just, again, a side note. One little sort of, like, gripe about what Christianity is or isn't. Gnosticism was very much a sort of important offshoot of Christianity, and as much as Christians were fairly open-minded to a lot of the sort of offshoots and schisms that were happening in this time, Gnosticism was so far off the beaten path, rejected so much of what Christians were teaching, that it was repeatedly rejected as heresy in the first several hundred years of Christian doctrine, um, along with a bunch of other heretics like Arius and company, which, again, hopefully we'll be able to talk about a little bit before we get to Augustine. Um, so suffice it to say, the Christians, you like, the New Testament may not be perfect, but it's certainly better than anything else that's out there that proposes to be authoritative about Christian Christianity and Christendom. Um, now, obviously, there are other objections that I want to sort of talk about here. Again, setting the record straight. Um, one is probably the historical Jesus argument. Like, there's a lot of scholarship these days arguing that, like, there was this real Jesus who didn't perform miracles and, like, he was just a normal dude, but all this sort of mythologizing grew up around him. 
like I know Reza Aslan is one of the big proponents of this, and there are, there are other scholars who argue this stuff as well. Um, what I want to stress here, call this like me trying to set the record straight, number two, um, is that they're really like they're using the same text that the Christians are here. Um, like they're looking at the Bible, they're just rejecting the supernaturality of the events, which you know there's kind of no point at that point. Like, maybe there was a Jesus, maybe he was, you know, crucified, maybe they did steal the body or however they want to explain it. Like, the disciples just trumped up this version of Jesus that as though he were Messiah, as though he could perform miracles, as though he were the Son of God, as though he resurrected. Like, I, I don't really buy it. At the end of the day, this involves a whole lot of picking and choosing, looking at the Gospels and saying, okay, Jesus said this, he didn't say this, he said this, he didn't say this. And the criteria for that are fairly arbitrary. Like, I've studied it, and I get the logic, I understand what they're doing in most cases, but, you know, when you were ultimately rejecting even that level of scholarship and instead just being, let's throw out the New Testament, forget it, and just make up a new version of Jesus based on what was likely historical at the time, like, it just misses the point. If he was just a regular old revolutionary, he probably wouldn't have made that much of a splash. And if you're ultimately saying that, like, Paul or you know, Matthew or John are these supernaturally great writers who just sold everybody on this. It just doesn't seem likely. There would have been more outcry. There would have been more people upset about it. Like, there would have been more documents, you know, refuting this kind of phenomenon. And if you are now reverting to the, oh, it's a Christian cover-up argument, well, now we're really in tinfoil hat conspiracy territory. Like, if you don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, if you don't believe that Jesus resurrected, that's your business. I'm definitely not going to be able to convince you otherwise. Like, yes, it's a miracle. That's the way miracles work. They violate the laws of science. They reject everything that we are taught to believe about the way that the world works. This is an act of faith. It was always meant to be an act of faith. If you don't want to perform the act of faith, that's fine. But then don't take him as a figurehead. Um, the best argument I've heard in this line is probably from my professor at Boston College, Dr. Kraft, um, who very much adapted uh, C.S. Lewis's argument uh, for the same. He basically said, you know, if you're going to accept Jesus as a moral exemplar, but also not God, you have to deal with the fact that Jesus at one point said, I am God. Like, Jesus is, at the end of the day, either a madman, in which case you shouldn't be paying attention to what he's saying, He's a liar, like he's not God and he's pretending to be, in which case, once again, you shouldn't be listening to what he's saying, or he is in fact God and he's telling the truth and therefore is a reliable source for information, and in fact is a really reliable source for information, because God. So, by all means, take Jesus or leave him. Don't try and change him into something that suits a more scientific or contemporary perspective. As much as I am suspicious of a lot of Christians sort of efforts to make the Bible into something beyond question, beyond interrogation, beyond criticism, I also tend to appreciate the authority of the text. You either have to take it or leave it. Um, you cannot cherry pick your way through the Bible. You cannot be like, oh, well, this was really smart, but this was really dumb. This was important for understanding what's going on here, but this is just purely cultural. Like, it's a really narrow line to walk, and I caution you against doing that. 
Um, again, there's a lot of issues here, and we definitely don't have time to talk about them because, again, we're supposed to be focusing on love. Um, I just want to sort of stress, like, there's a lot of effort in, you know, Christian circles these days, or rather non-Christian circles these days, to sort of, like, historicize Christianity, and I just don't think it's going to work. Like, either Christianity has miracles in it, or it's not Christianity. Like, that's just kind of the way it's going to work. Now, on the flip side, I do want to talk about the morality here. And this is where I'm going to absolutely flip-flop to the other side of the discussion and get really grumpy with contemporary Christians because I think that they are very much misinterpreting a lot of what the New Testament has to say. Um, now, obviously, since we're in a class on love and friendship, we need to talk about the Christian attitude towards these two things. Um, now, obviously, this Christian outlook is going to be an outgrowth of the Old Testament perspectives that we've talked about in the past. Now, as you'll remember, when we talked about the Old Testament several weeks ago, I stressed that all of the relationships in the Old Testament are structured around the relationship between God and humans, the Jews and their, their God. Um, you are supposed to love one another because God loved you. You are supposed to refrain from behaving in certain ways because God wants that from you. And you need to show your love for God by obeying his commandments. Again, we got into that discussion about homosexuality and Leviticus being pretty clear and pretty straightforward about this being sinful and wrong. And as much as I want to understand it another way, like, that's what it says. And if, again, your fundamental relationship with God is the primary relationship in your life, it's kind of hard to make room for it. But I do also want to talk about the way that Christianity talks about these things as well. Um, first and foremost, I want to look at the Sermon on the Mount. Um, notice here the way that Jesus changes the way that the Old Testament is interpreted. First off, look at that passage at the very top of our second page uh, in Matthew 5, verses 17 and following. Christ came to fulfill the law is the heading provided by the ESV. Um, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So this already is a really important passage that a lot of Christian theologians struggle with. Because on the one hand, we do have this passage where Jesus says, hey, law is still binding. Nothing from the Old Testament is going to pass away. Not a jot, not a tittle is the old King James version of the text. Um, so with that in mind, you would think that all the purity laws are still in place. Like, Christians can't hang out with Gentiles, question mark. But some Christians are Gentiles, question mark. How does that work? Um, what's more, notice that, like, there's a lot of rules that most Christians today just don't follow. Like, we're not terribly concerned about our oxes when they treadeth out the corn. And we are not terribly keen to, like, legislate people who, you know, wear poly cotton blends. Because, you know, God said in Leviticus that anyone who wears, like, a garment made of two different cloths is... It's an abomination and they will be, you know, killed or something. Like, there's a lot of law in the Old Testament that does kind of get ignored by Christians. Part of this is because of a change that we don't actually have here. Um, in the book of Acts, uh, 
Luke records that like Peter is apparently having this really weird dream and in it there's like this bed sheet and there are all these animals some clean some unclean like some that you're allowed to eat and some that you're not allowed to eat and this voice from on high is like Peter take and eat and Peter's like dude I can't eat shellfish it's a, there's a rule like no lobster for for Jews and it's like no it's okay I said so this is God and Peter's like oh okay and as much as this is about like now we can eat shellfish it's also very much interpreted by peter to mean that now gentiles are allowed to come into the church and in fact gentiles are welcomed into the church like paul is aggressively marketing christianity to the gentiles um, they're in fact going to become the greater number very quickly in the church like jews are going to be outnumbered by gentiles within like 20 years of the church being a thing um so Obviously, Gentiles are going to have a role to play. And as a consequence, there's a lot of discussion throughout the New Testament about how that's supposed to work. Um, Paul, who is very pro-Gentile, is usually at odds with Peter and the Jerusalem church, which are very pro-Jew, um, in sort of butting heads about like exactly how much of the Jewish religion, how much of the Jewish practices do Christians, in fact, have to observe. So in, even in 1 Corinthians, you can see bits and pieces of this. Um, so you'll notice that, like, uh, Paul talks about how, you know, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful in 1 Corinthians 5.12. Um, or rather, 1 Corinthians 6.12. Sorry about that. Um, he's stressing here that even though the law is sort of still in force, we are no longer being judged under it. This is the fundamental th sort of theological point that Paul is making across all of his epistles. Um, yes, the law still binds us. We are still sinners under the law, but it serves only to convict us, not to condemn. Now that Jesus has died for our sins, we should still abstain from, like, legit sinfulness, but we don't have to worry about the cleanliness restrictions. We don't have to worry about a lot of the sort of, like, ritual performance because our relationship with god is now direct this is the fundamental thing that the christians see as different from between christianity and judaism under judaism you only related to god through the acts of sacrifice through obedience through following the law christians however due to the fact that jesus has died for them they relate directly to god through jesus no intermediaries necessary like a christian can get down on their knees and pray directly to god ask for forgiveness of sins and receive it right there like no intermediaries necessary this will get complicated by the catholic church we'll talk about that later hopefully again if we have time um suffice it to say that this tension is a difficult one to resolve on the one hand there are lots of folks who are sort of following that Matthew passage, not a jot or a tittle will pass away, therefore the law is still in force. We still need to obey the laws. And there are even Christians out there who are following like Levitical laws and stuff like that. On the other hand, Paul is very insistent that those laws are no longer binding. They're great as guidelines and we should definitely follow the Ten Commandments and the really important ones, but what matters is not one's action, what matters is one's heart, one's faith. Through faith, we should definitely follow Christ, and we should definitely kick anyone out of the church who's not doing that. Notice that he's very quick to condemn those sexual, immoral, sexually immoral folks, like the guy who's apparently sleeping with his mother's husband, or uh, his father's wife. Like, nope, can't have that. Absolutely wrong. Get out of the church. 
by believing in Jesus, you are supposed to also follow Jesus. And while that may mean that you can eat shrimp or not eat shrimp, what it does not mean is that you can just like go around murdering people because, hey, I'm forgiven and I don't have to worry about it anymore. Which we should remind the Crusaders of that in 1,500 years, but again, we'll get to that. Um, suffice it to say that this is complicated. And obviously this is important to our discussion because so much of the frustration in contemporary time against Christianity has to do with uh, Christianity's very restrictive policies towards sexuality. Um, so first off, before we get into the actual sexual restrictions here and look at the kind of different perspectives that are being demonstrated here, I want to talk about the Sermon on the Mount some more. Um, notice right after that passage about Christ coming to fulfill the law, we get three passages right in a row, bing, bang, boom, and then even more that sort of riff on the same subject, where Jesus is altering the law not to make it weaker, but to in fact make it stronger. So notice the passage on anger. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Notice, too, on the subject of lust. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown in hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. The emphasis throughout this passage is Jesus is saying, yes, there were these laws. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. But these were just a reflection of your relationship. Jesus is making them more strict. You heard it said, do not commit murder. And you're like, ooh, I hate my brother, but I don't murder him. So therefore, it's okay. No. If you have anger with your brother, you are guilty of murdering him. Your heart is wrong. Your relationship with God is corrupted. Your relationship to your brother does not stand or fall on whether or not you murder him. Fix things with your brother. Reconcile. Love each other as God loves you. Likewise, if you are staring at a woman with lust in your heart and yet not committing adultery, you don't get to sit there saying, Look at me! I'm holy! I didn't commit adultery! No! You have committed adultery. You wanted to commit adultery. You are not blameless. The sin is still there. Make your heart right. Cut off your eye. Cut off your hand. Do whatever you need to do to purify yourself. Do not fall into sin because that means hell, death, pain, suffering, the whole shebang. Notice what Jesus is doing here. Rather than focusing on the strict letter of the law, do not commit murder, do not commit adultery, do not lie with another man as with a woman, he is much more interested in the relationship of the heart. Are you following God? Are you practicing your relationships correctly? That's the most important thing. I stress this. Because as much as there is not going to be any way for us to sort of like reinterpret the New Testament to be friendly to homosexual relationships or to sex before marriage or to adultery or to any number of sort of sexual sort of responsibilities, notice that that's always the wrong way of looking at it. And Christianity today gets this so wrong. Like Jesus doesn't spend a whole lot of time talking about sexual sin. 
Like, we get this passage about lust and this passage about divorce here in the Sermon on the Mount. He has, like, a couple of other things where he mentions in other Gospels things about, like, you know, not worrying about who your wife is in heaven. Like, the Sadducees come to him about that, and he's like, guys, there is no sex in heaven. Calm down. Like, it's not a big deal. Like, Jesus is not interested in this. But over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, Jesus is going to repeat, don't be greedy. Don't love money. Don't, you know, trust in money. Do not, like, heap up goods to yourself. Like, he is much more concerned with hypocrisy, with greed, with being lousy to each other than he ever is with what you're doing between the sheets. Um, so as much as, again, I don't think there's any way that Christianity is ever going to come around 100% on the, you know, should homosexuality be tolerated within the church? Like, is this a recognized form of marriage? I really don't think that's likely. I think there's just too much against it. Too many Pauline comments, too many comments in the Old Testament. I think at the end of the day, it's a false flag. I think Christianity concentrating on this sin the fact that the church seems to be dead set against abortion and homosexuality and doesn't seem to have any problem with, you know, capitalist figureheads taking over office or, you know, incredibly rich people, like, depriving people of their proper wages. The fact that Christianity is not up at arms about that stuff shows a huge failing in the Christian church. Like, if, in fact, a gay couple want to go to church... I'm cool with that. Like, if I were pastor, which I'm not, it would be fine. Now, I'd have questions for them if they wanted to try and get membership, again, as a pastor. Um, but the fact of the matter is, like, that's not the war that people are supposed to be fighting. Notice that even in this section, Paul emphasizes, don't worry about what other people are doing. Like, yes, they're going to commit sin outside of the church. Don't worry about it. Police the church. Focus on the people who are on the inside. The fact that every time some new legislation comes down the pike that says, you know, we're going to guarantee more protections to, like, trans people, or we're going to guarantee more rights to, to gay couples, and the Christians throw a hissy fit, that is totally out of sync with what the Bible is saying. It is not at all our concern. Yes, if there is a conversation about, like, transgender people within the church, yes, that's something the church needs to weigh in on. It needs to police itself. But when it comes to, like, should gay people be allowed to be married under the eyes of the law, not our business. Never has been our business. And in fact, it says, you know, sinners are going to be sinners. You can't make them not sinners. Like, yes, try and convert them. But if they're not going to listen, then they're not going to listen. Stop trying to police the world. Um, like, obviously, I get very worked up about this. Apologies in advance if this turns out a little bit soapboxy. What I want to emphasize here, what I want to sort of convict Christendom of doing is of getting mad about things they shouldn't be getting mad about. Notice, Jesus is very much emphasizing, again, loving one another, being kind to one another. Recognizing that each other have faults, yes, as we will see with all of this talk about like sins and you know forgiveness and so on and so forth, but also you know not letting that be the thing that we're concentrating on. Um, he is much more upset with Jewish authorities pretending to be authoritative like the Pharisees than he ever was with sinners being sinners. He is totally willing to reward the centurion for his faith, even though the centurion is a Gentile. 
he is not willing to turn the other cheek, not willing to turn away from the fact that Pharisees are turning the temple into a giant den of thieves, or the fact that the Pharisees are parading their accomplishments as though they are, you know, God's chosen people. Jesus doesn't tolerate it. As much as Jesus is, you know, Mr. Nice, life, love, kindness, you know, good shepherd, all those sorts of images, he is also a hard ass when it comes to not tolerating Judaism and Christianity being co-opted for the purposes of greed or selfishness. You want to talk about what Christians should be absolutely livid about? It's those Christian or ostensibly Christian ministers and leaders who are taking money by the bucketful, acting however they want, totally out of sync with what the gospel talks about, and getting a pass because supposedly they are within the church. That's the kind of shit that we should be burning churches down for. Like, I do not I don't even, like, if anything, I'm not emphasizing it enough. And yet somehow we're still on about gay marriage. We're still on about abortion. Like, ugh, don't leave it. I can't. I can't. <sighs> Serenity now. The next thing I want to stress is who Christians are supposed to love. Because this is another important point that very much kind of gets distorted by contemporary Christianity. You'll notice that most of the passages, both in the Old Testament and in the New, that talk about like being decent to each other, use the word neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself is frequently emphasized. We saw that in Leviticus. We see it repeated here multiple times by Jesus, by Paul, by by uh, John. Like All of them are riffing on this idea. It's a crucial concept for both Judaism and for Christianity. But what I think is so particularly interesting in this case is most Christians these days see neighbor as referring to other Christians, like within the church. And this is indeed how the Jews would have perceived it in the Old Testament too. Like this is often how it's perceived. You know, you don't have to give a shit about the Gentiles. You can absolutely lend them money on interest. But there are very strict restrictions in Leviticus and in the other laws that say that you have to treat each other's like neighbors, i.e. other Jews, with respect, with decency, with care, loving one another. But notice what Jesus says when somebody asks him this exact question. This is what the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. Notice the frame here. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Notice, again, Shema, Deuteronomy 6. We read this passage. First and most important law. Jesus says this explicitly at one point. Um, and then again, that chunk of Leviticus. Now, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, as everybody has been repeating it. And Jesus responds, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So notice, Jesus is absolutely giving the seal of approval here. I am God. Here is the major rule, thank you for getting this right. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You follow those and you'll be good to go. But that's not the end of the conversation. He, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who do I have to love? Who can I exclude from this great generosity that you are prescribing here, in short? Notice the way that it's framed. He, desiring to justify himself, asks, who is my neighbor? The obvious sort of suggestion here is the guy is thinking about the people who he can exempt from this rule. Okay, so yeah, obviously, like, my family I treat well, the people who go to my synagogue I treat well, like, the people who I work with I treat well. Sure, those are my neighbors, right? So I can love them and just, like, not love others and everything will be cool. 
But notice how Jesus responds. Again, parable, because Jesus. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Notice the emphasis here. Jesus is once again calling out the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of the time. Here is a Pharisee. Here is a priest, respected member of the church. He sees someone hurting by the side of the road. This would theoretically be a logical neighbor, one of his parishioners for all intents and purposes. And yet he sort of looks the other way and goes on the other side of the road, just walks by, doesn't pay any attention. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. The Levite was the priestly caste, like the entire tribe of Levi, one of the twelve tribes of Israel, was set apart to perform all of the sacrificial rituals. Like these, they, not all Levites are priests, but all priests are Levites. Additionally, Levites were probably working for the church in some capacity. Maybe he was an architect, maybe he was working on the building. At any rate, he is also supposed to take responsibility for the church and for God's people. He too, hypocritically, walks to the other side of the road, avoids this man who is bleeding in the street. But a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, poured on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. A Samaritan was technically an outsider. Samaritans believed most of the Jewish teaching, but they believed that the the Jews had the, the location wrong. They believed that the proper location of the temple, the proper promised land is in Samaria. And so as a consequence, there is a lot of feuding between Jews and Samaritans. Like, there's a lot of question about whether or not the Samaritans should even count as believers, if they are even, you know, supposed to be considered the chosen of God. And the Samaritans believe the same about the Jews. But notice, it's the Samaritan, the outsider, the guy who has no responsibility to this guy whatsoever, who ultimately picks him up and not just helps him, but, like, puts him on his own animal, takes him to the inn, and pays for his stay there with a promise to pay even more when he gets back. Like, the innkeeper's probably going to take him out to, to the cleaners for this. Guy doesn't care. This dude needs help, and he is going to help him. Now, obviously, we're all expected to sort of answer, oh, well, the Samaritan is obviously being the good neighbor here, but that's not the focus of this parable. Remember, the question was, who is my neighbor? with the mindset of who do I exclude from my ministrations? Who do I not have to love? So Jesus asks, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Notice the way the question is framed. Not which one is the neighbor, who proved to be a neighbor? A neighbor is not defined by their relationship. Because the priest and the Levite, by the logic of this, you know, community, would have been much closer to a neighbor to this guy who was lying dead in the street, or lying half dead in the street. The Samaritan would be the least likely candidate for the neighbor. And yet, our person responds, of course, the one who showed him mercy. This is the obvious point of the parable. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. What Jesus is doing here is attacking the question. 
why are you asking who your neighbor is? What possible good are you going to accomplish by this? Whatever answer Jesus gives him, whether he says, you know, all Jews are your neighbors, or, you know, everybody who is in a five-mile radius is your neighbor. At the end of the day, the guy is going to go home and be like, oh, okay, so I get it. So people in Rome, I don't have to give, give a shit about. People in Russia don't have to give a, give a shit about them. Instead, Jesus questions who proves to be the neighbor. A neighbor is not defined by your relationship, by your proximity. A neighbor is defined by your actions. And it is not something that you can expect reciprocally. You cannot decide, you know, that guy was a jerk to me, so he is therefore not my neighbor. No. You are good to him, and therefore you are his neighbor. That's how this works. And this is another thing that Christians have very much lost sight of. Somehow, in the whole Christianity protecting itself, covering their own asses, you know, sort of anticipating frustration from outside. Christians have increasingly rejected Gentile society, become more and more insular. That's not how this is supposed to work. Christians are not the only neighbors to Christians. Christians are supposed to be the neighbors to everyone. It is not about, you know, a Christian looking at themselves and saying, all right, who are the neighbors in my life who I need to work with? No. What should be being asked here is every Gentile in a 20-mile radius should be saying, I have a neighbor who is a Christian. Because a Christian has behaved in a neighborly way to me. In theory, everyone you interact with is supposed to be your neighbor as a Christian. No exceptions. Doesn't matter if they're a sinner or a, or a Christian. Does not matter at all. The only difference between Christians and non-Christians, as far as the New Testament is concerned, is that Christians can police Christians because, again, they need to keep their communities holy, sacred, honorable before God, keep people from stumbling, all that stuff, and not police non-Christians because they have no right to. So, again, we're doing it wrong. Um, again, soapbox. Apologies for that. But I do feel it's very necessary to set the record straight, especially because this is love. Like, that's the key here. Notice what 1 John says. Like, the reason why I included 1 John as our one, like, weird outsider epistle is because this is famously the Christian text on love. And notice that he emphasizes it all over the place. Like, John is the love writer anyway. Like, even the Gospel of John is very love-focused um, as, as compared to the other Gospels, as compared to the other writings in the New Testament. But notice how this love takes form. Like, look at that... Uh, passage, God is love, on, you know, 1 John 4, 7 and following. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this, if this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Notice the theological and philosophical import here. John is saying, you know, much as we saw from Plato and Aristotle, this sort of elevation of friendship and love to this high plane where, you know, we're celebrating virtue. It's a sort of purified form of these human relationships. Notice that this is an even more purified form. Love is now the absolute virtue here. 
And even Paul, as much as Paul is down on a lot of like sexual relationships and is down on marriage throughout a lot of First Corinthians, which I do want to talk about and hope we have time to, notice that even that last passage that we have here from First Corinthians, Corinthians 13, which is like one of the most popular passages to be recited at weddings, even though that's not really what it's doing, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, these are the great three Christian virtues, but as Paul emphasizes, the greatest of these is love. Now admittedly, this is agape, not eros. This is a totally different word in the Greek. This is the word that the Christians have very much co-opted from the Greek, turned it into something very much their own. Agape is this transcendental love. It is the love that is God, that God embodies, and that embodies us when we perform it. It is a selfless love. It does not expect anything, as Paul stresses here. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, never ends, and all of it is the highest virtue. This is love as the Christians have it. And I want to stress... This is a very different animal than what Plato was talking about in um, the Symposium. Like, it's a different word for one thing. That's very obvious here. Again, eros versus agape. Eros has a clear sexual dimension. Agape does not probably remember that. Um, agape is meant to be the highest way that Christians interact with one another and with the world. Remember, they're not limited to each other. Christians are supposed to love everyone. As... It, is written in first john you know god loved us unconditionally he gave his son for us through this profound act of self-sacrificial love this profound pardon me this profound act of self-sacrificial love this profound act of giving to others we are dwarfed by it and always will be dwarfed by it there is no way in god's green earth there is no mechanism by which we can perform an equivalent sacrifice. It just can't happen. We are mortal. We do not have the relationship that an immortal being like God can have to another immortal being like Jesus. It's not possible. We can never pay this back. So the very least we can do, according to John, according to Jesus, according to virtually everyone in the New Testament, is love others as we were loved. Be merciful as we received mercy. Be gracious as we received grace. That's the central Christian truth here, the central tenet that governs the entire Christian love language, the entire Christian ethics, the entire Christian behavior. Sanctification, the act of becoming holy before God, is governed by this kind of love. And while there are many different groups of Christians, all believing many different things, which we definitely don't have time to talk about here, all of them agree on this. All of them agree because it is so central to New Testament teaching that love is the most profound relationship that a Christian should have, and it should be with everyone around them. No exceptions. They are all neighbors. We should all regard them as such. Um, this is what God did for us. The least we can do, the tiniest pittance in response, is to love one another. Now again, not love in the sense of eros. There are way too many Christians who are eager to conflate erotic love, like the eros love of, of Plato's Symposium, with the agape love of the New Testament. 
Yes, they're one word in English. That's not the same word as far as the Greeks are concerned. It's certainly not the same concept. So when people are saying, well, it should be okay for homosexual love to exist in Christianity because it's all one love, right? No, it really isn't. Yes, people who are participating in a homosexual relationship can also love each other with agape, and Christians should admire that and should respect it and should promote that. But they also have some pretty strict responsibilities to shoot down erotic love in, of that kind in the church. Hence the problem. It is not going to be simply dealt with here. Now, as for the issue of marriage and love across the board, I realize that Christianity has also gotten onto some real horseshit as far as this is concerned. Um, there is a lot of discussion in Christian circles about whether or not a Christian is even supposed to have sex at all. Catholicism especially has very much kind of carried away the idea that celibacy is the highest way to celebrate God. And you can see why they come up with this conclusion. Like you'll notice in 1 Corinthians, Paul is pretty down on love. Um, so you'll notice like A, he's got a lot of beef with a lot of the members of the church about their sexual immorality, like especially that dude who's sleeping with his mom or sleeping with his dad's wife. Like that's not cool. There's apparently a lot of other equally heinous sexual immorality going on and notice that he reports it as, you know, even the pagans don't do this. Like what are you thinking? Um, notice that his ultimate conclusions in 1 Corinthians 7 are more ambiguous. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, is it, it is good for a man not to have a sexual relations with a woman, Paul responds, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Notice he's being pretty explicit about sexuality here. Your body belongs to your wife, your wife's body belongs to you, and vice versa, wherever you are in this relationship. Like, as much as it sounded like it was going to get super misogynistic there when I was like, yes, and your wife's body belongs to you, like, and everyone was like... No! Immediately turned it around. Also, your body belongs to her, so this is an even-handed relationship. Like, yes, there's still all that stuff from the Garden of Eden where the man is, has authority over the woman. We can't afford to get into this now, unfortunately. Hopefully I'll have time for questions when we actually make it to class. Um, suffice it to say, for our purposes, like, yes, this is not, you know, obviously misogynistic, except insofar as, like, it's both ways. But notice the emphasis. Have sex, Paul says. Resist that temptation. If you have sex in this legal environment, in this protected environment, where the marriage bond is protecting you, then you won't be tempted to do all that stuff that Jesus was really upset about earlier in Matthew 5-7. to um, But notice that this is a concession. Like, he says this. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, which in Paul's case means, like, widowed and not actually connected to anyone at this point. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn. With passion. Let's stress that. The ESV definitely threw that in over and above what the King James used to have. It used to very much say, better to marry than to burn. 
which very much suggests that Paul is stressing it is way better to be married and therefore, you know, vent your sexual frustration and your sexual attraction in a safe and God-approved environment than it would be to, you know, chase after women who you're not supposed to be sleeping with and therefore get yourself damned. That's the way that that passage has been read for a long time. By Catholicism, by Protestantism, by virtually everybody. Because Paul is so ambiguous here, because he is so concessive here, because he is stressing, you know, it's probably better to just focus on God. Like he literally says a little while further down, you know, it, it's better to exercise self-control, to just be alone that way, you know, you won't get distracted and, um, you know, you won't like get caught up in the cares of the world, as he puts it. Um, Catholicism very much ran away with this and came up with the idea that they should absolutely be stressing, you know, celibacy across the board, especially for the priesthood. We'll talk about exactly how that develops in, in future classes. Suffice it to say, that's not native to the New Testament as it stands. Not at this point in time. In the original New Testament church, Believers freely married, they freely had sex with the people they were married to. Um, some of them probably did perform abstinence and did not, in fact, get married, and they performed celibacy. Like, that totally in, happened in all likelihood. Um, there were a lot of Stoics hanging around, you'll remember. We'll talk about that next time. Um, but this was not a command. Pe the Christians were encouraged to have sex with each other. It is not shameful in the Christian act of marriage. This is a specifically safe place cut out for it. Now, a lot of the terms here, because again, I'm going to just touch on this, because it is something that kind of comes up, especially when you were in college, sort of talking about this stuff. Um, fornication is the word that is often used to translate some of the Greek words here. Uh, the Greek word is porneia, which basically means like sexual immorality. Um, Paul frequently rejects what he calls sexual immorality. Um, in this particular passage, he includes that, like in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 12, and 13. Um, or wait, no, it's not 13. It's 6, 9 to 10. He mentions, like, you know, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, etc., 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 will inherit the kingdom of God. Um, porneia is the Greek word that is being translated as sexually immoral. It is often translated as fornication, i.e. sexual relations before marriage. I honestly don't know what the deal is with that one. Like, as I don't think that it is wise to use this as a loophole to sort of like, yay, I can commit, you know, I can have sex with whoever I want before I'm married. That's definitely not what the text is saying, and Paul would definitely suggest that that's a bad idea. Um, even if, like, that isn't considered immorality in this day and age. Um, suffice it to say that that would also be off-limits, according to the New Testament, if slightly weaker than some of the more explicit cases. But again, I want to stress, as much as it is a preoccupation of Paul, especially in this passage in 1 Corinthians, sexual immorality is not the main thing the Christians should be on about. Like, it wasn't what Jesus was most concerned with. Paul seemed to be concerned with it primarily because it kept cropping up in his churches. Um, I think that that was primarily contextual. We should not, as Christians, be waging abstinence campaigns or engaging in crusades against sexual immorality in the, the you know, country or the world at large. And any evangelical who is banging that drum is probably doing more harm than good. 
Um, Christians are supposed to police themselves first, and then and only then should they minister out to others and you know try and get them to follow Jesus in order to make them insiders, and then they can police them. But again, sinners are going to sin. Like, for three, four hundred years of Christian history leading up to Constantine's grand conversion, whatever that was all about, Christianity was a minority religion. It had no political power. Like, it was persecuted. Christians were getting killed left and right for being Christians, for practicing their faith. There was no way that Paul could tell his church to go out and police the community at large. Like, it was not possible. It was not plausible. It couldn't be done. Um... If, in fact, the church is the minority in America these days, the same rules apply. Like, we should be defending our own houses, not going into others and making people miserable. Um, so, again, food for thought. If you want to talk about this with me more, I'm more than happy to. Again, I'm obviously over time on this one because there is so much to talk about here. If you do want to sort of pick my brain about Christianity, like if you're thinking about it because you are a Christian and you're hearing different things from your church or your faith... Or if you're not a Christian and you just want to know more about like what actually Christians believe for whatever reason, by all means, send me an email. I'm always eager to talk about this stuff. I am obviously on a crusade to set the record straight and like correct the damage done by ignorant internet people. Um, just send me an email. We can talk about this more. Uh, in the meantime, I hope that that's a decent enough briefing on how love works from this Christian mindset, or at least how love works from the Christian mindset at this particular moment in time when Christianity is at its most nascent stage. Um, for our next discussion, we're going to talk about Augustine, and we're going to talk about how Stoicism infiltrates the church. Um, how certain elements of Christianity get sort of exaggerated once the Romans sort of accept this. And we'll talk about the actual historical transition that brings us to the point that we have like a state church that it has political power and becomes kind of a big deal in the, the centuries to come. Uh, setting up our discussion of medieval romance and medieval morality and medieval love. Um, we are moving out of the classical period at long last. Um, Augustine will be our pivot point, since Augustine is arguably the last of the great classical philosophers or the first of the great medieval philosophers, depending on who you talk to. Um, so we'll talk about that next time. I look forward to it. Again, if you have any other questions about Christianity, the class, or otherwise, feel free to email me in the meantime. I'll talk to you soon.